Greetings tonight again in our Master's name. Appreciate that that opening there this evening. I feel like it was God directed, laying a foundation for what we'd like to share here this evening. Before we get started in the message, I would like to thank you as a congregation for your kindnesses that you've showed to my wife and I and your, your gifts and your very thoughtful gifts, cards. Uh, I've enjoyed being in your midst. I feel like I'm just now starting to remember some names and put some families together and where everybody belongs. I would think it would probably take another couple of weeks to get it all figured out, but uh, it's, it's just simply been a blessing to be here in your midst and have a lot of good memories. May God bless you as you continue to labor in this community. I believe we're in the last days or our time is short. And it just, again, the the importance that we're involved in the, the Lord's work and preparing souls for eternity. I'd like to begin with a story <clears throat> that I heard and lay the foundation for the message here this evening. March the 10th, 1974, almost 30 years after the end of World War II, the last Japanese soldier surrendered. Like I said, almost 30, 30 years after, I think, 1944, I think Japan surrendered. A man named Lieutenant, if I'm pronouncing it right, Hiro Anata was his name, was sent to the tropical island of Lubang in the Philippines at the age of 22 years old. That's what he would have been at that time. As Japan was in the, as the scales were tipping and the Allies were getting closer to invading Japan, they were seeing they were losing the war. And in their desperation, they were resorting to guerrilla warfare so they dropped this lieutenant off by himself onto this island. His mission was to do anything he could to disrupt the Allied forces there by himself. Long after Japan had surrendered, this man continued the fight. And in the course of the next 30 years, he had killed over 30 men. They spent thousands of dollars trying to convince this man that the war was over. They uh, dropped leaflets, they dropped newspaper clippings, photos of his family, trying to convince him to surrender. At some point in time, over 13,000 men were deployed on the island to locate and capture him. But Lieutenant Donata was convinced that it was all a lie and that to surrender meant death. Till finally his 
commanding officer that 30 years earlier had given him the orders and had dropped him off there at the island, made contact with him and convinced him to surrender. In his autobiography entitled No Surrender, My 30-Year War, he had this to say, I felt like a fool. What had I been doing for all these years? For the first time I realized this was the end. I pulled back the bolt on my rifle, unloaded the bullets, eased off the pack I carried with me, laid my gun on top of it. That sounds like a pretty pretty incredible story that a man for 30 years was fighting a war that didn't exist. And all because he thought it was a lie to surrender. 30 years this man wasted the best of his life. He would have been just a few years younger than I am right now when he finally came to the place that he surrendered. 30 years of living on war rations, living like an animal, lonely, constant fear, on the run, all because he thought, all because he was convinced that the cost of surrender was, was too great. When in reality he could have been free all those years, in reality he could have been enjoying life. The title of my message tonight was Surrender, a Heart That God Controls. And I'm afraid tonight we've kind of adopted that similar type of mentality that we're scared what it might cost if I completely surrender. You know, what if I just say, God, here I am, you just do with me whatever you want. That's kind of a scary thing. Because just what might that cost be? Francis Havergale made this comment. Full consecration may be in one sense the act of a moment, but in another the work of a lifetime. It must be complete to be real, and yet it is real, it is always incomplete. Consecration is a point of rest, yet a perpetual progression. Now that sounds like a contradiction in terms there. That it's the act of a moment and yet it's a continual it's a work of a lifetime. It must be complete to be real and yet if it's real it's always incomplete. In other words I believe what she's saying is the, the that which God desires to work within us, of bringing us to that place of surrender. We come to a place where we surrender, and yet tomorrow I'm going to have to surrender again. A month down the road, I'm going to have to surrender again. It's an on, ongoing work. 
We're born with a nature that's bent, has a bent against God. Psalm 51, 5, David there in, after that sin with Bathsheba and his, his confessing there and says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And especially in the, in the New Testament, the idea of iniquity is there a lawlessness. There's something within us that we don't want to give up. There's a, something within us that I want to be in control. And you know, you see, see people express that some, some outwardly. A lifestyle of unbridled lust, rebellion. You know, you get that mental picture of a, of a, a rebel. Uh, long ponytails, tattoos, riding a Harley. That, that type of a picture. And yet it's also expressed in sometimes in a very, very subtle way. You know, we're born again. Church members involved in a lot of good things. And the brother read the scripture tonight there in Matthew 7. He says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to talking about a, a, a people that were involved in a lot of good things prophesied in his name and cast out demons and done many wonderful works and Jesus never contested that what he, what they were doing but can you imagine the shocking words depart from me here they were I thought they were doing God a service and they were involved in good things but he said you workers of lawlessness they were doing it on their own goodness merits years ago there was them and the slogan there, uh, Jesus is my co-pilot. That type of a mentality that I'm in the driver's seat. Jesus is over here. He's my, he's my, in case something goes wrong, that I can call on God. But I'm in the driver. I'm in control. I'm driving. I've heard statements that nobody's going to tell me what to do. Now, I have a lot of material to cover here tonight, and I'd like to just look through, again, an Old Testament account and just, just take some lessons here of a one man's experience. In Genesis 20, 28, and like, like to just look at the life of Jacob here, and a man that was went through a lot of difficult things because of that bent, that manipulating things, being in control, trying to control his own destiny, and yet what the tremendous cost there, that it cost him there. Genesis 28, you have him here on the run. We know the account where he, uh, in his conniving, uh, cheated his brother out of the birthright and the blessing. Then you see him on the run now because his brother's anger, his mother's counsel there, they better best leave. But here he comes to the place and it's in uh, the latter part of 28 there. It's called Bethel. An encounter with God. The house of God is what actually Bethel 
means. And I believe Bethel could be a type of our, our new birth experience. We're, we're running and, and God brings us to this place and Bethel is that initial encounter with God, that new birth experience. Now I want to be careful, I don't want to read something in here that isn't, but I want you to look at that which he had vowed to God. And you still see something here, at least I think I do, and, and if you differ, I wouldn't argue the point again. But verse 20, Jacob vowed a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. And just that one little two letter word, if. So often we come to God. If God, you do this for me. If you do that for me, then I will follow you. Now, is that really surrender? We, in our human nature, we want to make sure all the bases are covered. That idea of God, here I am. You do with me what you want. And yet I believe that Jacob had an experience here. It was something, I now believe it was that initial thing, and it's just what Francis Havergal was saying, that consecration, in a sense, is an act of a moment, and yet it's the work of a lifetime. So, okay, so we see Jacob here, maybe, and it's, it's the beginnings of his relationship with God. And yet, Jacob, in a sense, as you see his life then, as, as, it, as you read through those, and we won't have time to look at in detail. And yet, you see Jacob still manipulating, still trying to control the circumstances in his life, and, and constantly getting into trouble. Then you go over to chapter 32, and now you see him here on the run again okay he had according to I think if I have the timing right this was some 21 years later Jacob on the run again Laban he had just come from Laban he left uh, in, in secrecy there Laban run him down they were able to work things out and yet you see there when he was with Laban how that he became a victim of his, some of his own doings there. But then God brings him to a place, again to an encounter. He has Laban behind him, so he can't go, go back to that because he was running from that, and he runs headlong into Esau 21 years later. And he finds out that Esau is coming, I think, with some 400 men, and so God puts him in a place. Okay, Jacob, now what are you going to do? Then you have the experience here, and it's called Peniel. And it says, I have seen God face to face. 
First time was God's house, the house of God. Now this is, he has an encounter here. And Jacob realizes he can't run. He can't outrun this army. So now you see him uh, wrestling here with God. To the place where we, we come to that place. God brings us in that place where it's kind of, God, I can't run anymore. I, God, I, I, I no longer can manipulate things. I no longer can control things. And we just cry out to God for help. Now, I don't know if you all are familiar with playing chess. But those that are playing chess, it's called checkmate. It's when you finally corner your opponent to where he can't move anywhere. This is it. Checkers, you corner your opponent where he can't move anywhere. And it's not like God was for 21 years, well, if I move here, Jacob's going to go here. And if I, it's not that type of thing at all. God is sovereign. And I've been preaching that all week. God knew exactly what it was going to take for Jacob to come to the end of himself. And yet God was using circumstances in our lives. And sometimes, you know, we cry out to God, you know, when we see some of our loved ones taking a direction that we're burdened. And yet God, somehow we can just trust God that he's using circumstances and, and things into their, their lives that are going to bring them to a place. And yet we're still creatures of choice. It's still our choice. And yet, finally, God, if we don't respond, he has no other choice but to destroy us, to, to cast us into eternity, an eternal hell. But the point here is, okay, God, then it says he touched his thigh, or I think there it says his uh, yeah, thigh was out of joint. Literally, he couldn't run anymore. But I think it was a physical infirmity with spiritual implications Jacob all to this point had been running goes from one, one experience to another running from what his, his messes and yet when Jacob was finally broken and finally just with no ifs, ands or buts he surrenders to God then is when he finally began to experience power and that's when his name was changed from Jacob the supplanter Jacob the cheater, Jacob the conniver, to now Israel, a prince that has power with God. That's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And yet you see God in his, his sovereignty, God in his mercy, dealing with his child and bringing him to that place of surrender. What burdens me tonight is that we have a gospel that's, that's immensely popular. And it's a salvation apart from full surrender. A salvation apart from obedience to the word of God. Salvation apart from cross-bearing and suffering. And yet you can have the hope of eternal life. And still be the boss of your own life. You can have the best of both worlds. And it's immensely popular. Because there's no cost involved. You see, we're, we're wanting to do the same thing. Now, I, I used to love to study 
American history. I was in public school. I was not in a Christian day school. Studying the Civil War, we're wanting to do the same thing that General Lee was attempting to do at the, at the, as he's generally seeing that the South was losing the war. He was wanting, he was wanting the conditions of peace without surrendering. As General Grant of the Union forces was pressing Lee for, to surrender, he laid down the terms that the only terms that will be had would be an unconditional surrender. That Lee was to lay down his arms. The South was to completely drop all arms and that they were to be brought back into the United States government. Grant offered him that any place he chooses to meet, he's, he's willing to sit down with him and work out the details. Lee <clears throat> responded to him that he was very interested in the restoration of peace, but he didn't have, have no intentions of surrendering. And so Grant told him that, well, there's no point in, in meeting until those conditions were met. You see, General Lee was, was tired of the war too. He was concerned about the loss of lives and the destruction of property. He was wanting desperately to have peace. And yet he was wanting the South to retain its identity. To still be in control of things. And that's what brought the war on to start with. Because it was a, an issue of states' rights. And slavery was one of the main issues. That was the core issue of the battle because that's what pitted them against each other. So Lee was wanting the, the, to, to, to quit fighting, but yet I'm not going to give up. And that's so often what we do to God. We're tired of the struggles. We, we, want, we want that burden of guilt removed. We want peace in our, in our hearts. And yet, I don't want to surrender. I appreciated what G. Campbell Morgan had this to say. When Jesus came on the scene and he said he was preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God really means the kingship of God. It means that God is king now and always. The kingdom of God is in existence. God has never been dethroned, and this is what Jesus preached. He was proclaiming the kingship of God, the rule of God, the fact that the Lord reigneth. What this age needs is a proclamation of the sovereignty of God, the kingship of God. The kingdom of God is when a man yields himself to that sovereignty. And I want you to get this part now. When a man yields himself up to that sovereignty, nobody can tyrannize him. Those who resist his sovereign lordship set themselves up to be tyrannized by other lords. 
Now, I don't know if that makes sense to you. We have a choice tonight that we can surrender to the Lordship, the sovereignty of our, our loving Lord, or you can choose to be dominated by some other thing, come under the Lordship of some other thing. And I just, this story was, was shared with me. Her name was Linda. And she gave her testimony, and it's called Linda's Control Crisis. Linda was in her 40s when she told this story. She was married for 25 years and said to a very saintly man. However, her growing up experience, her father was an alcoholic and he, who, was very, uh, who was extremely controlling of her and her passive mother. Linda, like I had shared the other night, reacted to her upbringing, became bitter, and she had determined in her heart that she was never going to be controlled by another human. She met this individual, and she said probably one of the hardest things was the wedding vows. When it came to the part of love and obey, said love, yes, but not obey. And in that marriage, then because of her reacting and God bringing her into circumstances where he was trying to get her to surrender. And so she, she rejected that and became bitter toward it. And so now in her marriage, she was determined she was going to be in control of things. And to make herself feel like she was in control of things, she then... Allowed, I think I was. I think it was for the next twenty years. What she refused to surrender to the Lord and to her husband, she surrendered to other men in alcohol. Okay, what she refused to surrender to the Lord and to her husband, who she called very saintly. She then surrendered herself to other men. Those men controlled her lives. And yet she thought she was in charge. She was in control. And I remember now exactly what brought things then to a head. Where God brought that wandering child to a place. To that crisis point. To that, to that place, Panile. Where she couldn't go any further. But then she said this about her husband. That it was because of his incredible display of the heart and ways of God not only in extending forgiveness and mercy to her because of her unfaithfulness and, and that which he was not aware of for those many years and could have became bitter and like so many today would have divorced her but yet he said she called it the incredible display of the heart and ways of God that he helped lead her to a relationship with the Lord Tonight you see it played over and over and over again where people reject home life. They, they, they're not going to surrender to the parents' wishes. They're not going to surrender to the church's wishes. And thinking they're in control of their own life, they're going to be in control 
and then you see him fall into alcohol, drugs, immorality, enslaved in it. And it's a terrible taskmaster. And yet somehow the devil think, has them thinking that you're in control of your life now. And the whole time they're in tremendous bondage. There was a Romanian pastor that made some interesting observations about the um, subtle shifts in Christian circles in our thinking. He said in the early 1900s, one of the shifts in our thinking was that we went from an emphasis in pursuit of holiness to more charismatic or more an emotional spirit uh, experience okay so it, up to that time the preaching was very clear in the pursuit of holiness but then it shifted to to that of a, a an emotional experience that was kind of the thrust but then he said in the 50s and 60s it shifted from a call to a full surrender that was the preachers of that year up to that point. It was very clear the call of God was a full surrender. To the word commitment. Now I'd like to just read here just a little bit what he had to say about this. Christian surrender means that a person lifts his or, hands, his or her hands and says to God, Here I am. I surrender. You take over, I belong to you, you you dispose of me as you want. But he said in the but he said, This is America, the country of independent people. This is a place nobody should command me. I belong only to myself. A call to surrender or even more a full surrender simply doesn't go well with the people. Therefore the preachers who wanted results and wanted them in big numbers felt and gave in to the temptation to soften the demand. Okay, to reduce the cost, to make the message more digestible. Okay, that they hit on the word commitment. You see, commitment means I engage myself to do something for you, or even lighter, I promise to do something for you. But I remain myself, I may keep my promise or not. We can speak of weaker or stronger commitments, but be as strong as possible. It is still my independent self that engages itself in a tentative promise. And that's what I I said earlier this evening, that that's the gospel that is being preached. It has softened that which Jesus said has diluted the message What Jesus said that whosoever be of you, he that be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. That's in Luke fourteen thirty three. I don't know if I had that written quite right, but he's talking about a complete surrender, a full surrender. And you know the message wasn't popular back then, and it's still not popular. But Jesus never, never tried to get big numbers. He was trying to, to share with the people that that's what the price was of following him. 
And someone has said that surrender is not the surrender of the externals. There, you know, there's times when, you know, God, yeah, I'll give my, my money or God, I'll give my time. But it's an attempt, you know, I'm not going to give up. You know, it's a thing I can give the externals. But surrender is when a, it's the will is what we're talking about here tonight. And when that's done, it's, it in, includes every area of my life. When the will is broken, it's all-inclusive. Now, Francis Ridley Havergale, at the age of 38, wrote the song, and I think we're all familiar with that song, Take My Life and Let It Be. She, as she wrote that song, and I think it says that five years later that God chose to take her from this life at a young age. Somebody took that song and then put some questions to it. It was a whole list of questions. But I'd like to just go down through here. In some of the questions that were asked, what what does a surrendered life look like? What is the practical outworkings of a surrendered life? The song says, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Have I ever consciously acknowledged Christ's ownership of my life? Am I seeking to live out that surrendered life on a daily basis? Are there any compartments of my life over which I am reserving the right to exercise control? Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Do I live with the conscious realization that all my time belongs to God? Or have I merely reserved a portion of my time for the spiritual category of my life? Do I become resentful or impatient when others interrupt my schedule or when I am faced with unplanned demands on my time? Do I view my job as an opportunity to serve Christ and bring glory to God? There's a lot more questions, but I'm just skimming through here. My body. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Am I willing to be physically spent in serving God and others? Have I relinquished the right to have a healthy body? Would I accept and embrace physical illness if it would bring glory to God? And that's something that my wife and I, God has brought us to a place of just simply recognizing God's ownership of my wife's body. Am I morally pure? What I see, what I think, what I do, where I go, what I listen to, what I say. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Do the words that come out of my mouth reveal that my lips and tongue are fully surrendered to God? Do I habitually verbalize the goodness and greatness of God? 
Do I intentionally use my tongue to edify and encourage others in their walk with God? Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Do I treat my possessions as if they were mine rather than God's? Am I content with the material resources that God has given me? If God should choose not to give me one thing more than what I already have, would I be satisfied with his provisions? Do I become angry or upset if others are careless with my possessions? Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Do I consistently seek to know and to do the will of God in the practical daily matters of life? Is there anything God has shown me to be his will that I have been neglecting or refusing to obey? Do I become resentful when things don't go my way? Do I have to have the last word in disagreements? Am I stubborn, demanding, controlling? Am I submissive to human authorities that God has placed over me? Civil authorities, church authorities, authorities in the home or authorities in the workplace. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Am I moody, temperamental, hard to please? Do I trust God's right to rule over the circumstances of my life? Take my love, my Lord. I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Am I willing to let God decide whether I am to be married and to whom? Have I accepted God's decision to grant or withhold the blessing of children? Have I released my children to the Lord? Am I trying to control their lives? Am I willing to... Am I willing for him to to call them and use them in his service anywhere, in any way, regardless of the cost? Am I willing to sacrifice friendships if necessary in order to obey God and his call in my life? Take myself, I will be, take myself, I will be ever only all for thee. Have I surrendered all that I am and all that I have to God? Is there any part of myself, my plans, relationships, possessions, emotions, career, future, that I am knowingly withholding back from God? Have I settled the issue that the ultimate purpose of my life is to please God and bring glory to Him? Some pretty sobering questions. And I don't know where you're all at tonight. I don't know what you're facing. We have the options tonight. And God, 
still will give us the choice. The final choice is ours. We can be like General Grant and we can come to God with desiring peace, a relationship with God, and yet not really willing to give up. And yet really, as the brother read there, the possibility there of on the judgment day that God will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because I believe tonight anything short of a full surrender will not inherit the kingdom of God. I've heard the statement, it's Lord of all or not at all. Well, we can be like Lieutenant Onada. We can spend our life fighting a war that doesn't exist. Spend our life, and I appreciate the brothers this morning in talking about that hoary head, and, and, and it's beautiful if it's in the way of righteousness, but probably one of the saddest pictures to see an older person that has wasted years. And I think of that song, that probably that was the, the, the testimony of that individual that wrote that, that song, Wasted Years. Uh, the words fail me right now, but it's that after the, all those years wasted in fighting God. Because in reality, when we're when we fight against authority figures, when we fail to surrender, really we're setting ourselves up in battle against God. And it's a war we can't win. You won't win. You can run, you can uh, fight, you can struggle, and you can do just like Lieutenant, Lieutenant Onada. Or you can do like Linda, those individuals that, but you will be surrendered to something. And I think Romans 6 addresses that. Or we can come to the place of Peniel where we see God face to face and say, God, I just cry out. God, I'm tired of controlling my life. And brothers and sisters, then is when we really experience freedom. Because as the, as the man said, when we surrender to the Lordship of Jesus, there's nothing, nothing that can tyrannize over us. Nothing. That's, that's true freedom. And yet the devil has us fearful because just what if? And then you run all those things. What if surrendering my heart to God? What if he says takes my family, takes my wife? What if he sends me to some far corner of the world? What if he chooses to take my health? But you know, whether, we're in, whether we surrender or not, God is sovereign. He can choose to do those things anyhow. But somehow we think if we're in control that you know, we're not going to let God do these things. And yet, it's always our choice. I 
think that's what the Apostle Paul was talking about. He says, when I am weak, then I am strong. It's that when I surrender everything to God, then's when I truly experience a power and a freedom in my life. And how God desires that for each one here tonight. And regardless of your circumstances, whether home life or less than ideal, whether church life is less than ideal, whether your job is whatever, but somehow we're always looking at, you know, God, if my circumstances were just perfect, you know, if, if my dad was the kind of dad he should be, then, then I could experience, and, and the list goes on and on and on. And God is just sitting here putting his finger right on you. It's until you come to that place where you just simply give up. And it's not a game of chess where you're going to move here and God says, well, I'll cut them off here and you'll move here. And God, God's not playing chess with nobody. God's in, in control. It's just that the devil has you deceived into thinking that you're in control of your life. God is sovereign tonight. I'm just simply going to open it up tonight again. If there's someone that would just simply like to acknowledge something, clear himself, would like to just simply start anew, I'd like to just open it. If someone has something they'd like to share.